show. Thank you for joining me. Uh, I'm the host, Leo Dion. This is the Break Digit podcast where I talk about Swift development, development in the Apple ecosystem, and just overall updates, changes, and ways that managers, CTOs, and developers can stay current and up-to-date with new things coming out uh, when it comes to Swift and Apple products. Today, I'm going to be talking a little bit more about SwiftUI, the good, the bad, and the benefits. Specifically, I want to talk about my experience and examples of work that I've been doing in SwiftUI over the last few months. And then we'll be getting into why SwiftUI is here and why Apple introduced it in 2019. We'll then be talking about why SwiftUI is not really a good use case in a lot of examples. I'll be talking about some workarounds about how to get around that if you still want to use SwiftUI. And then we'll get into when and where SwiftUI is the ideal use um, and what uh, apps or maybe devices where SwiftUI really makes a lot of sense. So I want to talk a little bit about my experience and examples of where I've been using SwiftUI. So back in June, I actually did a workshop, and while it was the same month as WWDC, a couple of weeks actually afterwards, I ended up using UIKit for it. Um, this is called, uh, I called it PO Part because that's the random name generator, what it came up with. Essentially, it's a list of blog posts and comments that you can see in on an iOS app. I used UIKit for this example. Because at the time, I really didn't want to jump into SwiftUI with new developers and risk that. Um, but I will say that with this application, um, I am slowly migrating over to SwiftUI. So the sample app is actually available for you on GitHub. And I will share a link for folks later uh, in the show notes. But this is an example that I want to see what can what it'll do and what it will take to convert a UIKit app over to SwiftUI and see what exactly happens when I do that. The other example is an app that I'm using um, or I'm building for my local coding community, Lansing Codes, where uh, people in Lansing can see what events and what meetups are taking place. Uh, It uses the Firebase backend and web API that Eric, uh, my colleague, had built for the local community and uh, uses Combine, obviously, uh, along with Firebase. It uses SwiftUI. And uh, I think it's a really great example of where I'm taking a fairly simple app, uh, a brand new, basically new app, and building it into a iPhone app in this case. Uh, lastly, you probably heard I've been working on an app called HeartTwitch, an independent watch app that uses SwiftUI and, uh, and Vapor as the backend. And uh, the idea of this app is that uh, live streamers can share their heart rate right from their Apple Watch uh, and then take that, share it into a web browser window, and then use something like OBS for live streaming to share that video. This is a great example of using SwiftUI. It's a brand new app. It's Apple Watch. It makes a lot of sense because we're talking about streaming data. And so um, this is a one example where I think that SwiftUI works out really well, and that is the Apple Watch. So you're probably wondering, why is SwiftUI now? And I think there's a few good reasons. We did an episode uh, back in June with uh, Rene Cachot and Josh Berlin from Ray Winderlich 
to talk about iOS app architecture. And Ray had some really strong opinions about the issues with storyboards, specifically this idea of single source of truth. What are your recommendations or your personal styling? I would not recommend anyone using interface builder, especially in large teams. Yes. That's one of the strong opinions that I, I do have. It's mostly because with Interface Builder, you don't have a source of truth. Everything that you put in your storyboard or your nib file is subject to change by the code underneath it. And so when you're looking at the storyboard itself and you're kind of tweaking the layouts and you're tweaking the constraints and stuff like that, there's nothing stopping the code underneath for completely changing that. And so when there's bugs and stuff, sometimes it's really hard to figure out the root cause because you can't just look at the storyboard. That's not enough. He said the problem with storyboards as well um, with coded applications, if you're doing two of the same thing, then you run into the issue where your UI is not going to look like what you expect it to look like when uh, you build the storyboard and interface builder as opposed to coded. Um, and this can run into issues because you don't have a quote unquote single source of truth for how your user interface is going to work out. What is exactly single source of truth? Uh, what Wikipedia says is it's the practice of structuring information models and associated data schema such that every data element is mastered or edited in one place. In other words, you have one central location where data is, and as data is added or entered or edited, uh, the view automatically updates that accordingly. And what this come to, comes down to is what's called reactive programming or functional reactive programming. We talked a little bit about this with Jason in our Swift UI episode. Jason has a lot of years of experience building a user interface and reactive uh, programming. Reactive frameworks have been around even back when uh, Objective-C was the only way to develop an app. And Jason talked about this and how reactive programming is supposed to work. And so we all sat down, we looked at it, and we started incorporating that into the work that we're doing. It was particularly nice because a lot of the apps we were developing at the time uh, were very heavy with network updates, a lot of JSON API requests that were dependent upon each other. So, you know, you would set up maybe a, an operation queue that you would have to have something before you get to the next and, and try to create these dependencies. But, you know, that code can become a little bit difficult to manage long term. But then when he started showing me how these streams, as they're called on the reactive Cocoa world, basically streams of data that you can subscribe to, you can observe this object, you can subscribe to the data that's coming across, and you can manipulate on the fly to get it to what you need. And as those data pieces are coming across, you can filter them based on specific criteria, you can map them into other objects. You can trigger new network calls based on the results. It became very easy to tie in a lot of that dependency logic into a single network call where before we would have, you know, delegates and operation queues and things just strung out throughout the app. Now we have one simple chained function that has that logic kept in one place. So it was, it was kind of nice to keep that all together there. So it was much easier to maintain. There's some really interesting examples in places where reactive programming has already been used. Uh, we see this when it comes to a lot of the JavaScript libraries out there. I think Angular kind of does a reactive thing. Even React.js does a bit. Um, and Vue.js, they all kind of have this idea of um, having a central place where data uh, is stored and used and uh, reacted to in kind of like a two-way binding sort of way. 
Uh, I had some experience with this actually when I used to do uh, Silverlight development. Yes, how many of you remember remember Silverlight? The idea is we're shifting away from Apple's uh, suggested pattern of model view controller where you have a central controller that listens to model changes and updates the view. And now what we have is a model view view model example or view model model view view model pattern. The idea being is that there is a view model which is a conversion of that model into a data model that the view will use in order to show what is going on. Uh, for instance, like you might have a list of people, but that list of people is not just going to have that data object for people, but it might also have some other metadata that you want to display on the screen or a view model, which will say things like what color to show or what font to say. And things like this will be stored in a view model so that the view can update it accordingly. Some of the components that are used in reactive programming have been translated over to Combine and SwiftUI. And there's some specific terminology that's been used. For instance, we have the idea of a publisher. So one example is where you're downloading data from a URL. Uh, you'll have a publisher that will have that data or error based on how the status of that network request went. And then you might use functional programming to then map that data uh, in using a JSON decoder to a set of uh, people instances or uh, blog content. And then you also have the ability to take errors and be able to map those into, say, an empty list of people, because in some cases you may not want to show an error. You may just want to show an empty list. Um, so that's the idea of a publisher. It's, it's a stream of events that you then are using functional programming can map to specific data or data instances. We also have the idea of a subscriber. Uh, a subscriber is something that listens in to a publisher and updates accordingly. Uh, so when it comes to like functional programming, a lot of your functions are kind of subscribers in a way. The most common subscriber that we see, especially with SwiftUI, are the idea of observable objects. So for instance, uh, you have you create a class, which is your view model, which listen in, listens into updates of models based on data from a URL. The object model does whatever mapping needs to take place and then updates the view model accordingly. Uh, we also have like an environment object, states, bindable objects, things like this, uh, depending on how you want that data used throughout the view hierarchy. But the essential idea is like this observable or observed object that's then used uh, within SwiftUI. I think the biggest benefit, what we'll see with SwiftUI, is we can finally say goodbye to storyboards. I think uh, storyboards have um, gotten as far as they can get, essentially. And the biggest problem with storyboards um, is that you're constantly uh, dealing with uh, a really complex set of user interfaces. And I think it also introduced, instead of using a UI to build your user interface, we can finally have what's called declarative programming brought into Swift. So before a lot, if you do a coded UI, for instance, you're doing a lot of imperative programming and creating that user interface. Here we're using declarative programming where we can uh, do things that we've commonly seen when it comes to um, HTML. So instead of saying print out paragraph, print this out in this font, print uh, animate this thing accordingly, we're using declarative programming as a way to uh, basically have almost WYSIWYG, almost 
declarative way of seeing how a UI is structured um, using code. So you just put in a paragraph within a div. You don't have to say print paragraph begin, print paragraph end, things like this. It's all looks according to how your code looks. Another issue that we see with storyboards is when we're doing uh, development within teams. So Alex had a really great um, point about how storyboards kind of have their own limitations. There, there are trade-offs for one approach and another, and at some point it breaks down, right? Or in some cases it doesn't make sense. And specifically I'm talking about, let's say, storyboards don't make a breakdown on scale when you have... I don't know, more than 20 people, let's mm -hmm. say, working mm -hmm. on the app. Yep. But then it does make sense to do it right away as you're a one or two people team. Yes. But when it comes to working with teams, I think we see the biggest issue when we're merging different storyboards together or multiple people are working on a single storyboard. As I often suggest, if you're going to do storyboards, make them as small as possible and use storyboard references. But in the end, like... Working on a team and working with storyboards can be a real challenge. The other benefit that we see with SwiftUI is that Apple now has a way to build quote-unquote cross-platform applications, that is, cross-platform within Apple's ecosystem using SwiftUI. I don't know how many of you remember Catalyst, but we talked about this in our episode with uh, Daniel Jalkett where we talk about Mac development and how Catalyst kind of ran into certain limitations. You know, it's funny, I had another snap reaction to that during the keynote, and it was basically, I think I tweeted something like, Apple has announced and deprecated a technology all in the space of one keynote, <laughs> which was basically like, hey, there's this brand new, exciting technology we have that you can adapt your iOS apps to the Mac and you should not use it. You should use this new Swift UI. And that's not what they said, literally. But So can you do a Mac app with Swift UI, but not necessarily Catalyst? Absolutely. Yeah. Swift UI is a native technology on, and that's just to clarify, that's the big promise of Swift UI is that it is a native technology on all Apple platforms. Okay. Yeah. So it's kind of funny. It means that there are two ways to write a Mac app with Swift UI. Right, right. Because you could go the Project Catalyst route and have basically one bundle, essentially, that will work on both iOS and Mac OS. Or you can just do a native Mac app and still use Swift UI. Right. Or more precisely, do a native Swift UI app and have it run on the Mac, on iOS, the watch, or the TV. Right, right. But now... Um, Swift UI allows us a truly cross-platform way to build a Mac app, a watch app, and iPhone or iPad app or tvOS app as well. And this goes back to our stuff about HTML. Now we have kind of these, uh, this way of using almost like uh, media queries to be able to specify how certain OSs will look in certain ways um, using preprocessor directives or things like that as well. So why might you not want to use SwiftUI? I think if you're using an app that's fairly old and it still supports older operating systems, I think you're probably better off sticking with UIKit or whatever framework you're using. There's just no need and no uh, desire to move things to SwiftUI um, because there's nothing that the user will really see when it comes to that. So in that case, I think that 
you probably can stick with UIKit. And um, if your audience tends to be a, use older devices or uses older operating systems, there's no need to move to SwiftUI. There's no benefit to the user in that case. Another problem we see is the lack of documentation. I think this has been a really big challenge. There's a great website that provides kind of some information about some of the issues with lack of documentation when it comes to Apple stuff. I think that can be a real challenge uh, with something that's only been around for six months to a year. You may also require UIKit in a lot of ways. Uh, first of all, you might have like a third-party dependency to UIKit using some CocoaPod that has some UI widget that uses UIKit. In that case, it can be a real uphill battle trying to use SwiftUI in that case. There's also UI widgets that are just simply missing from SwiftUI that we have in UIKit. One of the biggest ones I can think of is UI Collection View. Especially with some of the updates we have, data sources and diffable data, it makes a lot of sense to stick with UI Collection in a lot of ways. Because of all the features that it gives us uh, with UIKit and a lot of robust stuff that they've added over the few, last few years, uh, it makes sense to just go with UI Collection and not try to like hack something together necessarily in Swift UI. So you're probably wondering, well, how do I still use Swift UI if I have an older application? Because there are workarounds to get around this. There are things like preprocessor directives. You can say that only uh, newer operating systems have access to certain features that are built on SwiftUI. There's also the ability to interface between UIKit and SwiftUI. For example, when you have an application that is UIKit-based and you want to bring in something from SwiftUI, we have UI Hosting Controller on iOS. Now, UI Hosting Controller is the iOS version of that, but there's one for WatchKit as well as AppKit. And that allows you to uh, use a SwiftUI element within uh, UIKit. So that's a, one great example. The other thing is, that, let's say you will need to bring in something from UIKit to your SwiftUI app. In this case, you want to use something like UI View Representable, your UI View Controller Representable, which allows you to do that. I don't know how many times have you uh, used an activity indicator uh, from UIKit in order to show uh, a busy, um, like for instance, I'm downloading a URL or making a URL request. I'll oftentimes need to make a activity indicator from UIKit and bring that over to SwiftUI. So then the question is, is when's, when is SwiftUI ideal? What is the use case where SwiftUI makes a lot of sense? I think if your UI is fairly simple, you probably could just stick with um, using SwiftUI in that case. It makes a lot of sense. And an example of this is like that Lansing Codes app that I built. Or for instance, an app that just uses uh, table views. Um, why not just use a list in SwiftUI? It makes sense and it'll work out great. If you're willing to work within the limitations of SwiftUI, it actually can work with you as opposed to against you. And of course, that makes sense if your device is fairly simple, like an Apple Watch. I think any Apple Watch app, it makes sense to switch over to SwiftUI at some point. SwiftUI is, was built out of the Apple Watch UI team, so it makes a lot of sense. The other thing is, are you willing to deal with unstable API and docs? If you're willing to deal with that and deal with the challenges and limitations that come up with that, then it's probably okay to just go to SwiftUI. And if you're starting with a new project, any sort of new application, then maybe going with SwiftUI makes a lot of sense. If you're going to start from scratch, you may as well start using SwiftUI, especially if you're thinking about migrating to other operating systems within the Apple ecosystem. 
And if your audience so let's say people who are really technically inclined, like developers or po folks who already are using the latest operating system, then it makes sense to go with SwiftUI in that case. You're willing to deal with whatever issues and be able to deal with the limitations that SwiftUI has. There's a great article by Guy Rambo, which I'll link in the notes, where he talks about how SwiftUI is ready in a lot of cases. And maybe if your audience is the right fit, maybe it's the right time to switch over to using SwiftUI especially if you're starting a new project or something on the Apple Watch. So we have a lot of great episodes you might want to catch up on where we talk a little bit more about SwiftUI and some of the new stuff coming that came out in WWDC. We have our episode where uh, in video that I did about SwiftUI and 2020 trends. We also have the episode with Daniel Jalkett on Mac development. We talked about SwiftUI and reactive programming with Jason Anderson and then Apple Watch development with Gary Sabo. And if you're interested more on app architecture, we have uh, Rene Cachot and Josh Berlin from Ray Wunderlich who talked about iOS app architecture and their great book on learning how to do iOS app architecture the right way. You can learn more and uh, catch up with more articles and episodes on my business website, brightdigit.com, as well as the podcast website, empowerapps.show. Thanks again for joining me. I look forward to talking to you again on our next episodes.